Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk. And I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Annie, you're wearing glasses right now, which is adorable, and giving me librarian in like a sexy lace shirt or top, I guess it's called in women's terms. A camisole. A camisole, a cami. Um, What's going on? Well, funny you should say that I look like a civil servant because... I got the news this week that I have been approved to become an election day poll worker. Now explain to me why it's important to like volunteer to do this right now. So I just found this out too. One of my friends, Sherry Camacho, posted a link to workthepolls.org, which is this kind of like grassroots organization trying to rally younger people to volunteer to work the polls, which is actually not really, it's not a volunteer thing. You get paid, I guess, legally they have to pay poll workers. So um, a lot of us have flexible schedules right now are out of work. The reason that she's trying to get younger people in particular to take on this responsibility is during most elections, election poll workers are elderly people and they can't take that risk during COVID times. So there's a huge need for poll workers. You basically just sit there and check people in, right? There's different positions and, you know, it is real work because you have to basically like validate and give that person their correct like voting card. Right. It also can be very confusing to vote. I would say like the local elections were a little confusing the ballot. So yeah. helping people understand the ballot and how to put it through the machine. So Overall, very simple. I've been approved. Yes. Yeah. So you will be there in your district in Brooklyn come November 4th? Yes. November 3rd. Um, November 3rd. <laughs> I'm sorry to everyone who's ever taught me anything. That is called voter suppression, what Nick just did. <laughs> I just also signed up to work the polls in Los Angeles. I think you can, you know, every city and state and district has, you know, a way to register online or at least should. And we recommend everyone check out workthepolls.org. Besides being a fabulous civil servant, what else has been going on in your life? Mm, Nothing. Literally nothing? Remember last week when we signed off of um, Zoom? I've just been sitting here ever since. You just like with the lights go on, you know, like the sun rises and sunsets and you just sort of sit there. Yeah. It's like the toys in the cupboard. I change outfits. I just jump and change outfits like TikTok. I love that for you. Yeah. The only thing that's changed in my life um, is Baby Watch. So let's just do Baby Watch 2020. Uh, I guess it's really Baby Watch 2021. When are you due? March 4th, 2021. Oh, I thought she was going to be here quicker. We are 13 weeks today, and she is the size of a lemon. That's a big baby. Yeah, she's uh, about three inches, which is like getting to be very baby size. You could hold her in the palm of your hand. 100%. She's the size of a clownfish. It's the same as Finding Nemo. Like, I mean, hashtag, you know, cancel Ellen or whatever. She is the size of a Matchbox car for those who played with Matchbox cars. I would have to say most lemons are larger than Matchbox cars. This is where it gets a little confusing because like these things are not all the same. She's the size of a large Lauderay macaron. If you remember last week, she was the size of a small Lauderay macaron. So this time she's... Uh, supersized. And then she is also the size of a hot jalapeno. Oh, a hot jalapeno. Yep. A spicy jalapeno. Mm. And I think there, I mean, there is one more app 
that I'm going to just pull up and see if up oh, a lemon. It's like everyone's into this idea of a lemon. It's a lemon. Well, you oh, know, back God. in the day, if you called somebody a lemon, it would mean like it's a dud. Yeah. Well, I don't think she is. We don't think your baby's a dud. She is. Oh, sizes. Here we go. Oh, she's the size of a brownie. I feel like I mean, out of out of any dessert foods, brownies have the least. Oh my god! There's there's literally no specificity to the size remember, of the brownie. Remember when I used to eat like enormous brownies from Sakara Life for breakfast? Yes. And you were like, I was like, that's not. Uh, I was food. Regina Georging myself. On okay, Life. hold on. According to this Pregnancy Plus app, she is the size of a brownie. Then she's also the size of a duckling, and she's uh, the size of a peach. So. Pregnancy Plus seems to be like upsizing the what size of this of baby. What kind of peach? Are we talking a, a white peach, a yellow peach, it a looks donut like peach? A, it looks like kind of like a stereotypical, you know, orangish, pinkish peach. Basic peach. Yeah. Next week, she's like a pear. I don't know. I don't trust Pregnancy Plus. I've been on the What to Expect app, which is if you've seen the Amy Schumer pregnancy documentary on HBO, it's the app that she's always like watching the videos from. And that's like the one that's the number one downloaded pregnancy app in the app store. So I, that's kind of like the my, my beacon. I feel like Amy Schumer is your influencer. Remember when I asked you a few weeks ago? Yes, she is my influencer. I love Amy Schumer. Her cooking show with her husband on the Food Network called Amy Schumer Learns to Cook is incredible. You can watch the f- whole first season now and they've just launched the second season the premise is basically that she and her husband, who is a you know James Beard award-winning chef named Christopher Fisher, are home in quarantine and they're self-taping a show in which like he teaches her how to like make taco, you know, fish tacos and you know sliders and things That's like so that. Cute. It's really cute. Their relationship is really cute. Reminds me of a second. I guess we're now kind of in arts and culture, so let's just play a little bit of music. Thank you. We were talking about Amy Schumer's cooking show. Selena Gomez also has a cooking show that I watched every episode of called Selena and Chef. And that show is not as good to me as Amy Schumer learns to cook. It's a little bit more highly produced. And like the thing that I think is kind of funny about it is she's like quarantining with her grandparents and then her two best friends. And like, it's unclear whether her two best friends are also her assistants because like whenever she can't find like a utensil in the kitchen, like she's like, Rebecca, like, where's my grater? And like Rebecca comes like scampering out and like gives her the grater and then like scampers away. And it's also done like the production, it's HBO. So it's like, a little bit fancier than Amy Schumer's, which is on the Food Network. And there's like a chef from like a famous restaurant in LA that kind of, they have like a big TV setup, And so they're like kind of teaching her via satellite, you know, how to make these dishes. I feel like this sounds like a like Bon Appetit gag that they used to do. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little highbrow, I think, for like quarantine. Like what I love about Amy Schumer's is it's super low fi and like their nanny is also like their third camera person. And they like write down all the meals on uh, cardboard signs and like handwritten scrawl. It's, it's funny. I, I recommend watching it. That's how I found out about Magic Spoon mm-hmm. um, was because Amy Schumer, as like an aside, was like, I love Magic Spoon, which actually we will get into in our interview with Gabby Lewis, who is the founder or co-founder and co-CEO of Magic Spoon. He is... Scottish, not Irish, uh, which is a mistake I made at the beginning of the interview. So 
word to the wise as a journalist, never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Shall we get into top stories? Let's do it. So I have been following this story for a few weeks. Actually, my cousin's girlfriend, Haley, turned me on to it. There's been this brewing like discussion on like the nutrition, health, Instagram influencer world about this uh, nutritionist named Tanya Zuckerbrot and her F-Factor diet, which is based on like eating these incredibly high fiber crackers that taste like sawdust, which actually sound really good to me because I love like a dry cracker. But anyway, she's sort of about eating all this fiber, eating her shakes and her, you know, now she makes shakes and bars and all sorts of things like that. And she has like a shitload of Instagram followers and a lot of, you know, celebrity or high profile clients, you know, at different times, I guess, Kelly Ripa was on the F-Factor diet, people like that. Anyway, a few months ago, this fashion influencer named Emily Gellis got a DM, I think randomly from a former F-Factor devotee, basically saying that, you know, had really negative effects on her health. And then she posted, you know, Emily posted this anonymous account. The other anonymous account started to roll in, pour in, and Emily kind of became this crusader against Tanya Zuckerbrot and the F-Factor diet. It's kind of a, an amazing story that was actually just recently covered in the New York Times because, you know, it's about the dangers of dieting and following, you know, certain influencers on Instagram whose lives seem perfect and whose diets seem bulletproof and who have celebrity people who endorse them uh, when in actuality you know, like the actual science of these diets is not necessarily safe or, or proven. Um, people were saying that they were getting rashes, that they were getting violent cramps. You know, there were like all sorts of health claims being made I, against Zuckerbrot. <laughs> so Nick, when you were telling me about this story, kind of you pitched it as if, which I, it's true, she's a very well-known dietitian that makes these products. But then it started feeling freaky when the New York Times mentioned that she sells merch, basically. And part of that is something called the F-Factor Intentions Bracelet to be worn on the hand that will either undermine your intentions or honor them as it holds the fork, reaches for the bread basket, or dips into the candy dish. So it's basically, you know, I think the bigger and less anonymous claim is that it's promoting disordered eating. I, I uh, clearly. Yes, clearly. <laughs> and she, you know, Textbook. she says she says that it's certainly not and that it's about having a healthy relationship with food. Obviously, that's what people with eating disorders say when they don't want to admit that they have eating disorders. Not saying that that's her case, but yeah. noticing some some overlap. If you want to find out more and sort of read all these accounts, I won't all try to summarize them here. If you go to Emily Gellis's Instagram, which is at Emily Gellis, G-E-L-L-I-S, she has them all in her highlights. And um, you can read like all these horror stories. And it's funny because she has like, in the, the New York Times article kind of talks about this, but she has no like skin in the game. Like she's not on the diet. She doesn't have friends who are on the diet. Her husband was like, why are you doing this? And she was like, I don't know. It just felt like when I started getting all these messages, like I needed to kind of give a voice to this, like to the dark side of this, of this trend. Yeah. It seems like they're in the New York times article, they wrote 
about it being this like Upper East Side cool moms club, like being a part of this diet. One woman paid $20,000 to like have uh, Miss Zuckerbrot is the nutritionist be her like accessible dietitian go to. Yeah, I guess what stuck out to me as kind of a PR person damage control, just from a damage control, what I thought was interesting in her approach to her response is she's like being very belittling to the Miss Gallus who called her out. Yeah, she's saying like, well, Miss Gallus isn't a scientist. She's not a researcher. I'll like talk to someone who has like credentials, but like not her. Yeah, she says, but this is a young woman who has no credential in health and wellness or any medical or clinical experience. The girl sells clothes for a living. That's the part where it's just like. Yeah, I mean, like Tanya Zuckerbrot put up this like Instagram, like one of those long Instagram, I guess an IG live that she saved and basically is like talking about being cyber bullied and like how her family has been bullied. And it's like, I I, like can't with these influencers who don't really want to take accountability for their actions and also their like influence. So like if something goes wrong and you've been influencing people to do something, this is how social media kind of works at this point. Anyway, the story gets like weirder from there. You should just check out the piece in the New York times. It's very just Google uh, F factor diet and it'll come up. It feels a little bit like gossip girl. Like they grew up and got boring and stayed in the upper East side. And like, now this is what it's come to. Check it out. See adult women acting like teenagers. In other news, it was reported by The Hollywood Reporter, who uh, was at an event for Matthew McConaughey's bizarre collaboration with Lincoln Motors, like, you know, his car commercials, that basically, uh, apparently, I should say, he is one of the top celebrity narrators on the Calm app, which is like a meditation app that you can get on the App Store. And he recorded one of the sleep stories, and his sleep story has been listened to over 11 million times since it launched in 2018. And it's, you know, I guess the concept is that you kind of are lulled to sleep by the calming twang of Mr. McConaughey. What's the content of the story? Um, Let's listen to a little bit. How often do we ponder the depth of the present moment, the one we're in? I mean, how often do we really feel what's happening within and around us, allowing ourselves to be moved, to be inspired, to be filled with gratitude for the mystery and the beauty of this universe and of this life? I myself got to work on a uh, film called Contact. So there you have it. If that is something that makes you calm, then, you know, if, if, if you love those Lincoln commercials from Matthew McConaughey, you're going to love his work on the Calm app. Other people that you can get read to slash lulled to sleep by include Harry Styles, which is a little bit more Isn't up my Jeff Bridges alley. On there? Kelly Rowland, Eva Green, Lucy Liu. Oh, my God. Laura Dern. Oh, my God. Laura Dern, sons. Sign me up. The the call map is not free though. Oops. Oh my god. My name is Laura Dern, and tonight we journey from the country to the coast for a sleep story called The Ocean Moon. Fuck me up. I am so I'm exhausted. Oh my god, let's go to bed. I wouldn't listen to McConaughey. I just feel I know that guy from Texas. 
that would not be relaxing to me. It'd be triggering. It would be triggering. It'd be every like frat boy. It's just this like proud Texas man is not something that I'm interested in at this point in my life. So for those who are interested in it, it is about $70 a month after a seven day free trial. And if you want calm for life, if you just know that for the rest of your life, you just want that McConaughey, you know, that sweet McConaughey sound, you can get it for $400. That's it? One time time and as much McConaughey as you could ever possibly listen to and Laura Dern. I would love to hear the numbers. Like who who buys what subscription? I know, it'd be interesting. Who drops off after the free trial period? Who gets the... Full year up front. Who does Actually, lifetime. speaking of meditation and sleep, we saw this inter- interesting headline that spoke to a bit of research that came out of the UK from Coventry University, basically showing, and they studied about 55 studies to show that apparently mindfulness and other types of meditation can actually worsen depression and anxiety for about one in 12 people, which you had said when I when I showed you this this headline, you were like, "Yeah, like that that happened to me." I said um, it like that. You could hear the anxiety in my voice. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny because it happened to me too. I mean, like I think you know, we I think we've talked a little bit about how we both have struggled with anxiety and and other sort of mental health things. And you know, a lot of times I've been told, "Well, you should try meditating." You know, mindfulness has like been proven to you. And then there I am, like sitting kind of like beating myself up over not being able to meditate or like not being able to quote unquote clear my mind or do all these things you're supposed to do. And now this is a little bit of research that is kind of legitimizing that, you know, for a certain subset of people, what they were saying in the article is that, you know, the idea is that your mind for some people can rebel against this attempt to try to quiet it. So this can like result in anxiety and depression as opposed to alleviate anxiety and depression. My mind is too powerful. My mind is like a really, it's a trickster. So like, it's not to be trusted. Mm. So the answer is don't feel bad if meditation doesn't work for you or think that you're doing it wrong because it might just not be for you. You might be that one in 12. Nothing works for everyone. True. So we mentioned last week, was it, that we saw a preview that Byredo is launching, Color Cosmetics. Uh, We weren't quite sure what it was at that time, but... Our favorite beauty news account, Trend Mood One on Instagram, revealed uh, several photos of the collection. It looks like, let me read you from the PR release. They have products called Color Sticks. They come in 16 shades. They're universal, blendable, and can be used on the eyes, lips, etc. They come in these like sleek silver tubes. They're basically like multi-use, slick, kind of greasy face paints and mascara with a fine wand. They have a green eyeliner, just a green eyeliner, no other eyeliner. And then they have lip balm. And then they have like this really chic oyster shaped eyeshadow compact um, that has like some really beautiful lush colors. And then they also have lipstick. They will be launching October 1st. Some items will launch a little bit later in November I imagine they think that these are going to fly like hotcakes for holiday. And I have to say, they look chic. There's a palette, which I found particularly amusing, that Isamaya named the corporate colors, 
which has, she says, and this is a quote from Women's Wear Daily, like the browns and the taupes, the boring colors that everybody actually does want to wear. So it sounds like it's going to be a fun and amusing, they're calling it like makeup art or something like that. If you don't know how to appreciate like a good taupe eyeshadow, then like you need to go back to square one. You heard in my first. Opinion. Okay. Kim Kardashian just filed, I guess, a trademark for KKW skincare, which we all probably should have seen coming. And it runs a gamut from moisturizers and cleansers and all that sort of stuff. So obviously with Cody's acquisition of a majority stake, they're trying to figure out new categories to expand into. And skincare is an obvious one. Kylie obviously already has Kylie skin. And now Kim is going to do her own thing. So watch this space. Interesting kind of, I don't know if this was a mistake on JLo's part. Last week, we, based on some cryptic Instagram photos from her makeup artist, Mary Phillips, we were speculating that she's launching a beauty line and then embarrassingly found out after that she had a beauty line, (laughs) JLo Beauty. And I guess she had done a collaboration with Inglot Cosmetics. But now if you go to the account, there's zero posts and it's private. So somebody got their dates mixed up when they decided to tease the launch because the account hadn't been cleaned up yet it's obviously rebranding and there's probably new products that have nothing to do with inglot is my guess but but she's doing like a full beauty line i don't know what it is i think celebrities like the better thing to do honestly at this point what would stand out is if you guys just did one thing one thing that you're known for what is jlo known for well it already bronzer right yeah but like the i mean obviously glow by jlo was one of like the first runaway hit celebrity fragrances and then there was a body i want to say there was like a jlo glow body oil wasn't there yeah but it's like she wants to get into cause i think this is a cosmetic line because it's like her face and it's all done up like she's known for bronzer i remember like everybody and her longtime makeup artist scott barnes has like his best-selling product is body bling, which like if you remember the waiting for tonight video where she's like encrusted in like a, you know, rhinestone bodysuit, that's kind of like how to get that skin look. Got it. But what were you saying? Oh, this is be- this is makeup. This is, I think it's makeup. I think the reason I, I bought NARS Laguna bronzer was because I heard it was the one that JLo used. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's very sparkly. But I feel like that's just kind of her vibe. I feel like she could do like a full sparkly face in the daytime and that's just who JLo is. I'm into it. So this is cool. All the magazines, all the big magazines are coming out with their September issue covers. We all know this is the biggest issue of the year for magazines. And if you snag the cover of American Vogue, you're like fashion's prom queen for the year. And that honor goes to Aurora James, who is the founder and creative director of Brother Bellies which is based here in Brooklyn. She sources her materials and her artisans that make her products all over the world. She started something called the 15% Pledge, which we've talked about on the show. Sephora was actually the first big brand to agree to the 15% Pledge, which is they're going to dedicate 15% of their shelf space to Black-owned brands. So this is huge. Just yesterday, they announced that Vogue is joining the 15% Pledge. Aurora is on the cover of Vogue, September issue, 2020. She It's actually a painting of her by Jordan M. Castile. And it's from her rooftop in Brooklyn. She sounds like she kind of styled herself. She says, I brought a few things with me that mean a great deal to me. And she brought her camera. It was just us. We talked about 
George Floyd, we talked about 15% pledge. Seems like it was like a very kind of like emotional and touching experience to sit for this photo and painting. So I don't know. It's kind of a cool moment that we can be happy about while there's a lot to be very uneasy about right now. It's awesome. It's awesome, like visibility for the 15% pledge, which is, you know, a great way, you know, that businesses can show their support for the black community and for black business owners and for black entrepreneurs by like actually buying their products, selling them in their store, dedicating sufficient shelf space, or in the case of Vogue, which is obviously doesn't have a store, they've committed to hiring 15% black photographers, writers, etc. Like that 15% of their new hires would be black. Amazing. And that is it for the top stories of the week. We'll jump right in with Magic Spoon founder Gabby Lewis. Gabby Lewis and his co-founder Greg Siewitz uh, are Brown University graduates. They graduated uh, to my dismay in 2013. I graduated in 2006, so 2006. <laughs> um, and they very quickly launched a brand of cricket protein products called Exo, which they sold and then launched their new company, which is called Magic Spoon. We actually tried the cereal, talked about it last week. I'm obsessed with it. Annie is getting on the train. It is a high-protein, low-carb, no-sugar breakfast cereal that tastes, I'd say, 90% as good as your you know, supermarket sugar cereal. So we wanted to talk to him about sort of like how he went from crickets to cereal and the importance of breakfast as the you know, first meal of the day, even though, you know, everyone's talking about intermittent fasting. Uh, Gabby is a firm believer in breakfast. But also, I think what's interesting about breakfast, which this conversation made me think about, is like, breakfast is a very emotional, and particularly cereal is a very like emotional meal. Like we all have memories of the kind of cereal we ate growing up. I wasn't allowed sugar cereal, which I remember distinctly. But you know, then what did you eat? Probably like, I was probably allowed like, oh, Special K. Oh, yeah, I love Special K. Actually, do you want to hear a funny story? So when I was like four or five, we lived in New York City. And one morning I woke up and I told my mom that I was tired of life. And my mom was like, oh, my God, my son is four years old. He is, you know, like questioning existence. And like, this is a mess. They like took me right to a child or like an early childhood therapist and I went to go see them. And then after I came out and, you know, they were going to talk to my parents about what our session had, you know, entailed, the therapist said to my parents, he was talking about the cereal life. He was having it every morning and he doesn't want to have that cereal anymore. Wow. They went from like zero to 50. <laughs> yeah. So I was not, I was not <laughs> tired of life writ large. I was tired of I'm just trying to imagine that a tasteless day. breakfast cereal. Were you like bundled up into your jacket with a scarf tied around your face, and they ran you downstairs and probably they're like taxi, like probably to the nearest child psychiatrist. <laughs> yes, and it was all it was all over a cereal, which is to say that cereal you know makes indelible memories for us, and we were excited to chat with Gabby Lewis about Magic Spoon. So, Gabby, you are the co-founder and co-CEO of Magic Spoon. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. And you started it with your best friend, 
and like longtime business partner. Correct. Greg Sevitz. And what I love about this is a couple things is one is you guys were best friends in college. Were you guys roommates at any point? We were on and off. So we were roommates briefly sophomore year. Then again, with a bunch of guys senior year. And where did you go to school? Brown. Oh, I did too. Really? Yeah. When did you graduate? 2013. 2013? Jesus fucking Christ. I graduated in 2006. Um, so there's that. Um, but okay, so you guys were roommates at Brown at a certain point. And then when you graduated from Brown, did you immediately launch EXO? We did, yeah. We actually worked on that during our senior year and then properly launched it the summer after we graduated. And tell everybody what EXO is. EXO is a company that is pioneering the consumption of insects as an alternative sustainable protein source. So a few years ago, there was this idea out there, which is still true, it was a little bit more buzzy a few years ago, that insects, and in particular crickets... A little more buzzy, by the way? That's a good one. So many puns. I didn't even know I was doing that. I think it's just like (laughs) built in now whenever I talk about it. But insects are vastly more sustainable than most protein sources. So in terms of land use, water consumption, CO2, like everything you'd measure in terms of sustainability, crickets beat not only cows and chickens and pigs, but also most plant-based sources as well. And so we had this idea that if you could convince people it wasn't weird to eat bugs, then you could change the entire food system. And even better, if you could make it cooler aspirational. And so we teamed up with Michelin star chefs and influencers, then maybe you could like really make impact. So we ran that business for five years and the hero product was a line of protein bars made with crickets designed by a three Michelin star chef. And then we sold that business about a year and a half ago and started our current business. Now, what's really funny or not so funny about that is as I was like preparing for this interview, one of the questions that like was in my head was like, you know, you struck out with the crickets, but then you really hit it with magic spoon cereal. And then as I was doing my actual computer research, I realized that you actually sold the cricket <laughs> uh, protein bar companies. So the joke is on me. What does a cricket farm look like? Ooh, um, it's not pretty. And we went to farms. So basically, cricket farms didn't really exist. So historically, crickets have been farmed for things that aren't very appetizing, like fishing bait and pet food. And so we came along and we had to work with farmers to start farms just for human consumption. And so they're all indoors. They're like stacked vertically in sort of... Mm, so they're not free range crickets. Well, they're not. But what's what we said, and this is not a lie... Crickets like the conditions that other animals wouldn't. And so if you think about all the horrible farming practices that most agriculture exists in, so like cows and chickens are crammed into dark spaces and they can't roam around, insects actually thrive in dark, small spaces. And so ethic, I mean, we don't need to wade into the ethics of raising (laughs) bugs, but if we wanted to, it's definitely, you know, not as ethically questionable to raise crickets indoors and like small spaces compared to most animals yeah it's funny a lot of people don't realize insects are used in a lot of beauty products i had to learn that really early on when people were asking if things were vegan and then the one nerd is like well actually red number like whatever it comes from this type of bug well yeah you saw that in like the starbucks uprising a few years ago when nobody realized their frappuccino had like a red dye from a beetle i don't know if you guys saw this but it like got a lot of press. Like suddenly someone was like, wait, the red in my frappuccino comes from a beetle. 
And it's like very distantly extracted. So it's not as if you're drinking Beatles, but people got very upset about that. So, okay, you had powdered cricket, protein bars, and other snacks. Number one, why crickets? How did you like come upon this idea? And number two, sort of tell me about how you got people over the hump that I assumed you didn't, but you obviously and clearly did, of the idea of eating crickets. We, we chose crickets specifically because, well, first the insects in general, because they're sustainable, nutritious, everything else makes a ton of logical sense. You just have to get over the emotional hurdle. And then once we knew we wanted to create a product that had some kind of bug in it, if you think about the spectrum of various bugs and how gross they are, crickets is one of the lesser gross bugs. If you're talking about beetles or cockroaches or any other bug that you could think of. And then crickets are also routinely consumed around the world. So if you go to Thailand or Mexico or really most Central American or Southeast Asian countries, insects and crickets particularly are like farmed at a pretty meaningful scale. And so we could sort of borrow from their understanding of raising crickets for human consumption. And I actually lived in Bangkok for six months, sort of observing cricket farms there and working with some farmers over there. And so there was less of a lift on the supply chain side, as well as there being less of a psychological hurdle on the demand side. Aren't shrimp just bugs in water? Why are people so hung up on Well, it's all psychological. I mean, and what's interesting, we got pretty deep into this, is that all these things change over time, our perceptions, right? So lobsters are literally crickets of the sea, as are shrimp. And like we actually tried a tagline, lobster of the land, on Facebook ads for a little while. <laughs> How did it go? Not, not great, as you might, as you might imagine. But, but lobsters, interestingly, even today in Maine, it's illegal to feed prisoners lobster more than twice a week. Because 100 years ago, lobster was viewed as just vermin of the sea. It was like a rat. People used to literally throw lobsters out of there, like into the trash, because they just didn't want to eat it. They thought it was terrible and disgusting. And they used to feed lobster to prisoners every night. And so the prisoners in Maine rebelled. And then there was a law saying you can't actually feed prisoners lobster more than twice a week. And obviously now, like 50, 100 years later, you can't think of anything that's more like classically luxury. Truly. Even like the motif of like lobster claws are like in jewelry and... Totally. I don't know, Judith Lieber handbags and... Yeah, and, and it's and all like, like, it's all just fake, right? It's all just built on our perceptions in this moment in time. And we like change our minds over the decades. And it's very interesting to track. So how did you approach shifting consumers' perception of bugs and in particular crickets? First thing we did was we found a three Michelin starred chef called Kyle Connaughton, who had previously been head chef of R&D at a restaurant called The Fat Duck in England, which at the time was named number one restaurant in the world. They basically invented molecular gastronomy. And interestingly, insects have been used in fine dining for a little while. So Noma and Copenhagen, which has also been number one in the world for a little while, they regularly feature crickets in like a soy sauce and a bunch of other dishes. So this idea had been floating around. And so it wasn't as hard as you might have thought to get a really amazing chef on board behind the idea. So he was essentially our first like additional team member beyond myself, my co-founder, Greg. And that gave us a little bit more legitimacy. And we were no longer just two guys who just graduated college and trying to convince people to eat crickets. Now we had one of the best chefs in the world also sort of talking about this for us. And then we followed a similar path by getting a bunch of other influencers on board. And so at the time, it was peak CrossFit, peak paleo. And so we got all the names from paleo and CrossFit on board 
either as investors in the business or ambassadors or in board in various other ways. And so people like Mark Sisson, John Durant, um, all the people who basically wrote the book on the paleo diet, which at the time was the buzziest diet there was, got involved. And so that meant we could sell into the early adopters and people who really cared about nutrition and fitness far more easily than, again, just us as a couple of random guys saying, hey, you should eat bugs. And so how long after you sold EXO did you start Magic Spoon? I was working on it pretty straight away. So I I had a few ideas. And so probably for a year after selling EXO, I was thinking about a few different ideas, testing them, bouncing ideas around with different people. And then we made the call to like fully go all in on Magic Spoon, probably like a year and a half after selling EXO. And then we launched Magic Spoon April of 2019. So just over a year ago. And I, well, first of all, I'm obsessed with Magic Spoon. And Thank you. And the way that I heard about Magic Spoon is I was watching Amy Schumer's cooking show, Amy Schumer Loves <laughs> to Cook. She like offhandedly mentions that she has Magic Spoon every morning. And like, it didn't feel like a sponsored kind of thing. And I was like, okay, like, that's interesting that she loves it. And she was like, said something about how like it keeps her regular or something. And I was like, you know what? We can all use a little bit of regularity in our lives. And so I bought it. And I was like, fuck, this tastes really good. I, I gave it to my husband. He was like, this is really good. And we had both been looking for a breakfast that had a lot of protein and that wouldn't sort of like weigh you down for the rest of the day. Like I had gotten really into during quarantine, like two slices of bread with butter on it, which is just like not the way you want to start your day. And so what was cool about Magic Spoon is that it had, you know, a single serving had five grams of fat and 10 grams of carbs, but 11 grams of protein and zero grams of sugar. And seemingly it's like sort of the good carbs versus the bad carbs because there's not really much crap in it. How did you engineer this sort of magic cereal? It took a lot of R&D. So the, the insight was basically that every category in the grocery store has evolved and grown up, but cereal hadn't. And so when we would walk the aisles of the grocery store looking for our next idea, in food or beverage, you look at ice cream and now there's the halo tops of the world and endless others. You look at milk and there's Oatly and endless others. Basically every category, someone's reinvented and made it healthier. But cereal, for reasons that we can go into, if it's interesting to you guys, nobody had tried to make a better cereal. Well, they had like Kashi. Yeah, but to, to me, Kashi is like, it's such a slight incremental improvement. It's like Haagen-Dazs to like really crappy ice cream. Like maybe Haagen-Dazs uses like organic cream or something. It's like a slightly, slightly healthier version. Whereas if you look at Halo Top to regular ice cream or Quest Bar to a candy bar, they like completely flip it on its head and the nutritionals are completely different. And so what we wanted to do was create a cereal that rather than having 20 grams of sugar and like zero grams of protein, it was like the other way around. And that's turned out to be a little bit more difficult than we thought it would be to actually create. So in order to basically have like an airy puff as the texture of cereal that you want, it's hard to keep that sort of mouthfeel while cramming it full of protein. And so we had to experiment with basically every protein source you can imagine, and then trying to do it without sugar. We wanted to keep it natural, so we had to try every sweetener source you can imagine. And making cereal, it's not like making a smoothie or a protein bar or something where you can just like mix it in your home kitchen and experiment a bunch to make cereal like you need to use a machine that 
is bigger than my apartment and costs millions of dollars. And so there's no easy way just to like test it small scale. So we had to work with a bunch of different manufacturers all over the country and just try out lots of versions. And eventually we sort of honed in on this recipe that allowed us to mimic the taste and texture of all the sugary cereals without the crap ingredients. And I would imagine, though, that sort of once you had the product, and one thing I had read, whether I think it was on your website, was you, you don't really think about it, but cereal is such a huge category that it has its own entire aisle in the grocery store. Like there's the cereal aisle. There's not really like the ketchup aisle. And I would imagine, too, that that means that the shelf space on that aisle is owned by very, you know, a very few, very, very powerful companies slash corporations, like the evil genius who like owns Kellogg's and General Mills and all of that, like, or probably owned by like Comcast or something. But did you decide to not do the grocery store thing because of the sort of challenge of getting on the shelf? Or did you want to be D2C the whole time? We wanted to be D2C and... So you're right. It's this huge aisle. It's owned by three companies, Kellogg's, German Mills, and Post. Together, they're like 85% of the cereal category. And our thought was the consumer we're going after right now is not eating cereal. So the Magic Spin consumer, they're having a smoothie, a Greek yogurt, oatmeal. Maybe they're skipping breakfast or having coffee, whatever. They're not walking down the cereal aisle. And so if we had created this high-protein, low-carb, zero-sugar cereal and stuck it next to like a $2 box of Lucky Charms, the people we're going after would have never found it because they don't walk the aisle anymore. And so we knew either we need to reach them online or if we were to go into stores, maybe we'd actually have to be in a different section of the store where our consumers are actually walking down. So maybe that's like the egg section. Maybe it's the protein bar section. Maybe it's just a checkout. I don't know. But we knew if we were to launch this in the cereal aisle, nobody who's interested in it would be walking there and nobody would buy it. And our last business was built D2C. And so that's just sort of where we ended up. And it turned out to be a good choice. And it's going quite well at this point. So you launched in April 2019, you said? Yeah, exactly. So about a year into your launch, COVID happened, the pandemic happened. Had sales been pretty steadily increasing up until COVID? Yeah, it's been it's been wild. So, so every month, I mean, we've surpassed our most aggressive projections that we made before we launched. And I think there's a few things. One is the product market fit is just unlike anything I've seen before. That This is also me coming from having been trying to sell crickets. And so I think anything after that would be easier. But cereal, it's such a huge category and it has such emotional resonance. So you talk to anybody in the street about cereal and they all have amazing memories. And everybody has a favorite cereal and most people have cereal in their house. There's not really another food category that makes people's eyes light up as much as cereal. And so if you say to someone, hey, you can have sugary, crappy cereal again, but it's actually zero sugar and full of protein and good for you, that's just a magical moment for them. And very few people don't get excited by that. And so we've seen that reflected in sales since launch. And then, of course, when COVID happened, from like a very selfish perspective, it was obviously good for our business because people are ordering online more and just stocking up in shelf-stable foods in general we're here selling something that's light and easy to ship and shelf stable. So very fortunate to have sort of stumbled into a business that happened to be not decimated by the situation as so many are. And it's like a horrible time for so many businesses. But for us, it's it's been okay, thankfully. So you guys, at some point you had a waiting list for the cereal, right? During like peak COVID moments of hysteria? 
Um, we, we've definitely sold out a few times. Right now, we're actually sold out of a couple of flavors, but we don't really like some brands are like, we sold out, like we're, we're so good, but we honestly don't like that very much. I mean, we try and sell out of our limited edition flavors. So we launched summer seasonal flavors last month. Like we sold out of those very quickly by design, but we try not to sell out of our core flavors. And when we do, we, we don't feel very good about it. The only criticism I've ever seen leveled against Magic Spoon is the price. I mean, $10, when you were pricing the product, $10 for a box of cereal that is smaller than like a jumbo Kellogg's box. Have you encountered resistance about the price? Yeah, a little bit. Um, How do you justify it? Well, so we're not selling cereal. What we're selling is a protein shake we've made into the shape of cereal. (laughs) I thought you were going to say we're selling magic. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, don't do it, please. We're selling love. We're selling a little bit of joy to start your morning with. A perfect start to people's day. (laughs) Uh, No, but we're not selling grains, right? And so cereal, cereal was invented as a cheap tasteless, like sugary, like calorie filler. And so literally the cheapest ingredients you can get in America to make anything with corn, cane sugar, wheat flour, that's what cereal is. And so you're never going to be able to make any food product that's cheaper than cereal, like per calorie, per gram, whatever. We're using high quality protein isolates, natural sweeteners, like high quality fibers. And it's just never going to be the same price as a crappy box of sugar and corn. For people who are used to buying a box of Lucky Charms at $2, it's definitely steep. And I wish it wasn't. Like I wish we could charge $2 a box. But the reality of our ingredients are just that we can never charge $2 a box. Even at scale? Like, you don't see the price Even at scale. Down? I mean, it's like, no matter how big of a company you are, nobody's selling whey protein for the same price as cane sugar. You know, those, those two ingredients just cost very different numbers. We can get it done a little bit with scale, but it's just about ingredients quality. And in the same way, like, no cold pressed juice is ever going to be the same price as Tropicana. No RX bar is ever going to be the same price as like a candy bar. It, it's just very different ingredients, even though like the product format is the same or like kombucha is not going to be the same price as Coca-Cola. Right. So, but for our consumers, most of them are not buying a $2 box of Lucky Charms. Most of them are paying $10 for a single green juice or you're getting like a $10 loaf of bread from Erewhon. Yeah, like or like eat, even if you're not talking about like the bougie Erewhon consumer, even if it's buying a Starbucks coffee, right? That's $3, maybe $4 for zero nutrition. Whereas our cereal for a serving, it's $1.25. And so compared to other healthy options, it's not that expensive. It's only expensive if you're comparing it to really crappy other cereal, which to us isn't a very fair comparison, even though I get that people make it obviously at first blush. Speaking of nutrition, one of the reasons that we kind of thought of a breakfast theme episode was because we were talking about like the rise of Magic Spoon kind of came at the same time as intermittent fasting became like a huge trend. And so as someone who's like always been interested in like diet fads and nutrition and and things like that, I've been sort of like following out of one, you know, one eye, the flocks of people who are saying, you know, don't start eating until 12 and don't eat after eight. You like take a certain number of hours off eating and then you eat for a certain number of hours on and that it's like the key to a long life and, you know, happiness and joy. And then there's you and you guys coming out with this like runaway hit 
cereal that is obviously a breakfast item. It's obviously getting a big punch of protein for your breakfast. Have you encountered resistance about sort of this idea that like, is breakfast not cool anymore? Is breakfast out? No, I mean, honestly, I think we're coming a little bit out of that craze. Like to me, the intermittent fasting was very tied up with like bulletproof coffee and like peak fat intake. And now people are like, well, hold on, maybe we shouldn't just pour like vats of fat into our coffee and like we shouldn't just like eat as much fat as we can. And I think now people are realizing that to some extent intermittent fasting works because you're just consuming less calories, right? Like you don't eat for 16 hours or two days or whatever. You're just going to eat less. And so, of course, you're going to lose a little bit of weight. For us, I don't see that as like a big enough trend to like meaningfully impact what we're doing. And we're actually very consciously trying not to make this like a niche air one consumer, like hipster product. We want to make this pretty mainstream. And most people in America are still eating breakfast. And another thing we've noticed, which sort of caught us by surprise, lots of our consumers actually don't even eat Magic Spoon for breakfast. And so when we survey our consumers, more than half of them have Magic Spoon for a snack or like sometimes I think 22% of our customers said they have it for dinner sometimes. And fairly large number of them have it for dessert sometimes. So it's really just like a nice, fun, high-protein snack if you don't want to eat it for breakfast. So we can get those people too. How many people work for you right now? There is eight of us at the company. So that's all, like you're you're a great example too of like a second-time entrepreneur who's like figured out that it's not about having a team of 25, you know, like in the first year and then 50 and then 150 and then 500. That's pretty lean for I'm, what I'm imagining is a company your size. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely a little bit understaffed and we... I don't take too much pride in that because we are trying to hire. So I think we've got, I think we've got like 12 open positions right now. We've gone from five to eight during COVID. We're, we're trying to hire another at least 10 this year. Um, it's tricky hiring remotely when you can't meet people. So we're getting there. You took on funding. You've had a $5 million round in 2018. Um, so that was late 2019. So we raised. A million dollars pre-launch, and then we raised about five and a half million a couple of months after we launched. And have you raised since? No. Are you going to? Not in the foreseeable future, but potentially at some point. Was it scary right after having launched the company, and obviously you are very busy, was it weird then having to leave and go prep and then go into another fundraise so shortly after? Not really. We've mostly raised money from investors that backed our last business. And so it's mostly from investors we've known for, I guess at this point, like six or seven years, in some cases even longer than that. So all of our first million dollars that we raised pre-launch was just investors that backed our last business. We literally just made two phone calls, the people that we loved the most, and they were happy to back us again. And then the, the more recent round was either people who we'd known for years are people who came like incredibly highly recommended from other investors we've known for years. So we've, we've never really like publicly like gone out to fundraise and like met dozens of investors and done like a West Coast roadshow or any of that stuff. If we had, it would have been a lot more stressful and taken a lot more time probably, but that's, that's not the approach we've taken. So your seed round was a million dollars? I mean, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. So we did like a pre-seed round of a million dollars and then your pre-seed. That's even crazier. Pre, pre, pre-seed. And then we called the round that was right after launch we called that our seed round which was five and a half but these names don't really mean anything except for 
making it sound more impressive when you get a Forbes article about your big, like pre, pre, pre seed round or whatever. Sorry, how old are you? You said you're almost 30. I'm 30. I turned 30. Oh, did, did you get 30 under 30? I did. Yeah. But yeah, for the last business. <laughs> oh, not for Magic Spoon. You got it for EXO. It doesn't matter. It's what he's achieved. No, no, I'm just saying, but yeah. that's, a, so you got it when you were like 26. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're looking at two. We didn't 30 make under 30. Oh, losers. I'm sorry, guys. The one There's other always thing I was 40 under 40. I, yeah, yeah that's the joke. I think it gets more competitive though. <laughs> I think so too, actually. <laughs> one of the other things I was interested in was you and your co-founder are also co-CEOs, mm-hmm. which is like having, you know, like, as I said, like kind of been around the block with investors and building companies and all that stuff. It's kind of like, yes, the Warby Parker guys do it and seem to do it pretty much without trouble, but it's pretty like cautioned against in the, you know, VC funded business world because of just like how complicated it can get in terms of decision making, among other things. How do you guys make it work? For us, it's it's the only way it could work. We've both, we're both opinionated enough and like want to sort of lead enough that neither of us would give up that title or that responsibility. And we definitely got pushback early on. So the first investors we met for our last business, when we had like no track record, Every one of them said, you can't do co-CEOs, it never works. But we just sort of did it anyway. And at this point, people don't really question it as much at this point. For us, as long as it's very clear how we delineate responsibility, it works. We know that in sales and marketing, basically, or fundraising, I have the final say. In operations, or product, my co-founder Greg has the final say. And so if we disagree, we just sort of default to that. But we rarely do disagree. And at this point, we've been business partners and friends for a very, very long time. So it works. We didn't realize this until like we were recording our last episode. I don't know if you heard it, but Nick really hyped you guys in our last episode. I'm he, obsessed. Like, he gave a really great review. Oh, amazing. So I'm assuming you haven't listened. Thank you. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, when he was describing it and he was saying it's made from milk protein, right? Yeah, milk protein, a whey protein isolate. Yep. So do you recommend putting using cow's milk again on top of this cereal? Or what do you say for other people that like are more into oat milk, almond? Personally, I am quite anti-oat milk. I know that's a dangerous thing to say these days. But I like going for a yeah, almond milk, cashew milk, any kind of nut milk, or just regular plain cow's milk. But people should feel free to use whatever dairy option or non-dairy option they, they so desire. Some people have it with yogurt one person who i'm not going to name a friend of ours even has it with water which is pretty is pretty, pretty weird just that's that is something that that's a red flag yeah we've heard all sorts i even met someone who has it with coffee not even like i could get a milky iced coffee but this was a black hot coffee which is yeah not okay there was one night at the office when I was starving and we had one box of magic spoon here. It was the chocolate kind and it was really stale. We had left it open for like, (laughs) but I put it in a bowl and I just, I didn't want to like, I just wanted something to do. I didn't really want to eat and just one by one with chopsticks. It was great. It was like mindless and I could pay attention to what I was doing. Yeah. I feel like chopsticks make most food consumption just better. You pay more attention. So what's next for magic spoon? Like, is it about flavors? Is it about, you know, is it about like Rice Krispie treats? You could, yeah, Magic I was going to say you could go into marshmallow treats. Like, what's, yeah, what's yeah. Going I mean, on? people send us pictures of treats they make all the time. Um, for us, we're trying to remain very focused on cereal. 
So lots of new flavors. We have a couple new ones dropping next month, fall flavors. Can you give us, are you doing like a PSL? Got to keep it very under wraps right now, but they're classically fall. I'll tell you that. And it's not any pumpkin pumpkin spice latte. Yeah, Yeah, I'll tell you it's not pumpkin. Is there one cereal type that like you haven't been able to crack, like how to make in the Magic Spoon? Yeah, so actually the ones that are closest to plain are the hardest. Or like the ones that taste like a real type of sugar. So anything that's like maple or frosted, any like subtle sweet flavor is very hard to replicate without using actual maple syrup or cane sugar or honey or whatever. And yeah, so like the more pronounced the flavor is, the easier it is for us to do with like natural flavors and recreate it. Is there one flavor that's the most popular? Yeah, now our fruity flavor is the most popular. That's what I have in my hand. You know why? It's because uh, the fruity flavor masks, like there's a slight aftertaste. It's not a bad aftertaste, but like with the frosted version, to your point, like it's like kind of the mo. It's na- walking outside naked. It's like the ingredients themselves, and that's kind of all you have to work with. Yeah, there's like more fireworks and sparkles with like the fruity one, so you don't taste that kind of like. I guess it's. I don't know what that aftertaste is, but is it is it the protein or is it the? I mean, it, it, it's or? all of it, right? Like where there's a little bit of protein taste, there's a little bit of um, natural sweetener taste, but yeah, hopefully. Not too pronounced. No. And you know what I say? I say to those people like myself who just noticed an aftertaste, then go back to regular cereal. What's what's regular cereal done for you lately? Right. That, that's the thing. It's like no healthier version is ever going to be like exactly the same. And the feedback we get and like we feel confident about this is we're definitely close enough. So it's 90% is delicious, but 10 times healthier. And I think that's a trade-off most people will take. I agree. And our final question which was really the first question that we had that, you know, beget this episode was, is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Of course. It's the most important and it's the most fun meal of the day. I like that answer. Where can we find Magic Spoon on the internet and on Instagram? It is magicspoon.com and the Instagram handle is at Magic Spoon Cereal. And are you personally on Instagram and promoting yourself at all? Uh, Not really. I actually, my friends make fun of me all the time for this. I actually... Posted my first Instagram post in like three years a couple of days ago. You've been busy like building companies. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you um, for weighing in on breakfast and for really revolutionizing my breakfast. My husband and I actually just this morning, today, signed a contract to do paleo for 30 days. Oh, wow. And we, I was like joking that it was like very 2012. How is the contract enforced? What happens if you fail? We haven't figured that out. It's an honor system at this point, but Magic Spoon is allowed. It's like one of the things in like the fine print that's allowed. And we're going to like probably have it for dessert and make it into like some kind of weird like cookie because we're addicted to sugar. (laughs) Amazing. Good to hear. So I'll let you know after the 30 days if I found any other unique uses or interpretations of Magic Spoon. Yeah, please do. Nick, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show. Product of the week. I don't know if you saw my eye makeup today. I did it for you. It's gorgeous. It's a black matte ink line painted across my eye. It's perfection because I use these brushes that I'm about to tell you guys about. It's a brand called Hakuhodo. They come from Japan. Their USA website is hakuhodousa.com. And they make 
the Rolls Royce's <laughs> of makeup brushes. So they have all different kinds. Uh, I guess trigger warning, some of them are made of animal hair, but they do have synthetic too. I have, I bought a whole collection of them uh, one of the first times I went to Japan and they're on the pricier side for makeup brushes because as we all know, you can get like a set of 60 for like 30 bucks right now and they're probably pretty good when it comes to synthetic brushes. But I have these tiny little detailer eyeshadow brushes that are like the most minuscule little tips. It's almost like a brush that like comes down to the point of like a pencil and you can get really, really, really detailed lines. You can get right in between your lashes. I like to like load them up with potted hot pour black eyeliner and just paint the eyeliner on the inside of my like waterline and it stays all night. I'll post a photo. How much will they run us? So the tiny ones that I am talking about now are like $15, around $15 to $25. And I buy them in different shapes. Like I buy them in like a conical, like tapered with like harder bristles to like smudge on the bottom lashes. I really like flat edged brush to do like the line on top and clean it up. And yeah, I think everybody should have a set of these. Treat yourself. There are other brushes on the site that can go up like very, very, very high. I think they're all handmade. It's like being a kid in a candy store when you go into these Japanese like malls, which are like also the hubs for all of the train stations too. So you just will come out of a train station. You'll be in this like luxury shopping mall. They have these Hakuhoto sections in stores and it's just like choosing. It's almost like you're choosing the nicest, most luxurious like paintbrushes in the world. That's cool. I love like I love a Japanese stationery store or like anything with like lots of different tools. In fact, I met with some pin makers in Japan that make like flow through ink pins to talk about using their technology in an eyeliner that we were developing. So yeah, it was really cool. We had this like really chic, like lounge space all to ourselves. There's all these like really chic Japanese men and like business suits. And they had these briefcases that they would like fold open with all these like (laughs) pins that were presented as if they were like, you know, the finest drugs or jewelry or whatever it could possibly be in the world. But they were their pins. I love that. So my product of the week, I want to preface this by saying that I'm an asshole. It is the La Mer, the broad spectrum SPF 50 UV protecting fluid. It is 1.7 ounces of uh, face sunscreen with avobenzone and oxybenzone made by La Mer which are, I guess are both you know, chemical sunscreens. It's $100 for this little thing. Let's see. Ooh, that's and yet, little. That is and little. And yet, I know. And yet. It is literally the only facial sunscreen that I have ever found that doesn't get in my beard, that doesn't run into my eyes and make my eyes sting, that doesn't like basically just like drip off if I'm working out. It's literally the only one I found. So this is, you know, my favorite product of the week, but it's also a call to our listeners to like hit me with a substitution and don't like tell me that these physical sunscreens are not going to get in my beard because apparently like if the particles are small enough to not be visible, then they're probably too small and they shouldn't be used on your face because you're absorbing them. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But this sunscreen's really, really, really good. I mean, like, La Mer is La Mer for a reason. 
It's prohibitively expensive. I'm all out and I haven't refilled it because I kind of can't bring myself to. But it's literally, I've been working out every morning in the sun outdoors and I'm worried about my skin and I've been wearing all different kinds. I posted a, an Instagram story the other day of a Clinique liquid sunscreen that I'd read about on Reddit that sucked, that like literally went into all like the creases on my neck and, you know, on my forehead. And uh, what do you think it is between formulas that prevents them from doing that or causes them to do it? I don't know. Like this one goes, it's like super silky. It like absorbs instantly. It's not super shiny. Um, Sorry, it's $95. It's it's, it's expensive, but like it doesn't sting your eyes. I don't know what to tell you guys. Like this is all I can find so far. You can buy it on lemaire.com. You can buy it at Sephora. Buy it somewhere where you can at least get some points or something. I know. I mean, I'm not happy about it, but it is my, it's my product of the week because it's it's all I it's all I have. I just stopped going outside. Yeah, well, that's not an option for all of us. Could be. I mean, it's paraben free. It's sulfate free. It's phthalate free. Obviously, it does have those chemical sunscreens. It has. I feel like parabens are going to come back. I feel like this is going to be their year. I bet it's true. And like you know, there's like even color in it. I don't know. Like it's you don't want to look too closely at the ingredient list, but. There's definitely fragrance, right? Yes. However, (laughs) I am a firm believer that any sunscreen is better than no sunscreen. So for now, until one of you guys or gals gives me a better option, I'm going to stick with my La Mer. I actually have one more thing of the week, but I didn't want to make it my one thing of the week. And I didn't want to do a ton of fanfare around it because I realize it's prohibitive and it's sizing. So last week, I mentioned buying my favorite underwear on Amazon. From Jeff Bezos. Which I don't like to do because I don't want to give money to Jeff Bezos. But I understand that people often do have to end up placing orders through Amazon. So just wait until your next order. Try to do it all in one box. Anyway, so I mentioned in that episode that a friend had told me about these perfect white t-shirts that are super cheap. In fact, now that I'm reviewing it, it's $29 for a pack of two. So $15 for the perfect, like, very, like, high-quality white T-shirt is, like, a dream come true. So the problem is, as you may, may have already guessed, if you are a white T-shirt customer, they are boys, little boys T-shirts. They're made for little boys. So if you are oversized, like, four or six, They might not work out for you, unfortunately, but they do come in. The two larger sizes that they come in are size 10 and size 12. I've ordered both. Size 10 I like to wear when my boobs are really huge and I don't want to wear a bra because it like sucks everything in. Size 12 I like to wear when it's like I want a little slightly baggier look. Otherwise, it it looks like it's like been heat shrunk on to me with a size 10. So if that's what you like, get that. They're on Amazon. The brand is Petite Bateau, set of two boys, short sleeve, white undershirts. There you go. I think that's our show with your sizest exclusive recommendation. I didn't want to do it, but I was asked to do it. And I asked permission of the woman who told me about these t-shirts, if I could blow up her spot. And she said, yes. Fair. So that's it for this week's episode of Eyewitness Beauty. Thank you so much for listening. We are still assembling and collecting questions for our Q&A episode. So please send us your questions, either DM us 
uh, we're at Eyewitness Beauty or email us hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our art is by Simon Abronowitz, and our theme music is by Danny Prezant. We will be back next week with another brand new episode, so we'll talk to you then.